Sinema avoids a primary, Georgia may avoid future runoffs, and McCarthy can't avoid a challenge. But there's no avoiding this week's episode of The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 397 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. For those political junkies and journalists whose Thanksgivings, Christmases, and New Year's have been disrupted the past couple of years, there may be a solution in sight. Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, best known for turning down Donald Trump's request to find enough votes for him to win the state, has called for the end of runoffs in Georgia's general elections. He said the runoffs have been brutal on election officials whose family holidays were interrupted and whose workload became exhausting. The 2020 Senate runoffs, which extended into January of 2021, were won by Democrats Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and were responsible for the party to win control of the Senate. This year's Senate runoff, won by Warnock over Republican Herschel Walker, was decided on December 6th. At least the Christmas and New Year's holidays were spared by having the contest a month earlier than it was last year. The general election runoff system in Georgia, mandated when no candidate received 50% of the vote, was originally designed, written, and passed by segregationists to hurt black candidates in a one-on-one contest. Later, as the Republican Party grew in the South and in Georgia, runoffs have helped GOP candidates. For example, in the 1992 Senate race, Democratic incumbent White Fowler led Republican challenger Paul Coverdell on Election Day, but failed to clear 50%. In the runoff, where far fewer voters decided to participate, Coverdell won with 50.6% of the vote. Perhaps one of the reasons Coverdale won the runoff was because of things like this. Let's put Paul Coverdale in the Senate and put White Fowler out. White says prove we don't need him in it and Georgia wants him out. But with Paul Coverdale, we'll have a leader of that, there is no doubt. So vote Paul Coverdale in the Senate and put White Fowler out. In addition, in 2008, Republican Senator Saxby Chambliss was forced into a runoff which he won in a landslide. But more recently, it's been Democrats who were rewarded in the runoffs, both Senate runoffs in 2021 and Warnock's victory last month. If there is to be a change in the voting law, it will be decided by the Republican-controlled state legislature, which will meet in January. The Democrats in the Senate were not even finished celebrating the 2022 elections, in which they not only retained their majority, but actually picked up a seat, when they got this news last Friday from Arizona. 
Kirsten Sinema was leaving the party to become an independent. What I think is important about this decision and, and this move is that I'll be able to show up to work every day as an independent and not be, you know, stuck into one party's demands of following without thinking. Anyone who has watched cinema in Washington this past decade has seen a noticeable shift to the right. First elected to the House in 2012... Hi, I'm Kirsten Cinema, Democratic candidate for Congress in Arizona's new Congressional District 9. She had the reputation back then of being on the far left side of this political spectrum, having been a backer of Ralph Nader and a member of the Green Party. In fact, when she ran for the Senate in 2018, her Republican opponent, Congresswoman Martha McSally, accused Cinema of treason. While we were in harm's way, she was protesting our troops in a pink tutu. And I'll tell you what, if these are not disqualifying enough, Kirsten, what came out last week, CNN reported that in 2003, while she was on the radio, you said it was okay for Americans to join the Taliban to fight All against right, us. We, you said we, you had no problem We're running that. out of time, Kirsten, but we have to let you respond to that. I want to ask right that. now whether Please. you're going to apologize to the veterans and but, me for saying it's okay Please. to commit treason. We are running Kirsten. out of time, so we got to get a response. Well, we need a response because she owes us an apology. Please. But since joining the Senate, she has joined another independent-minded Democrat, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, to stymie much of President Biden's agenda. And her party was livid when, in a vote last year to include a minimum wage hike in Biden's coronavirus relief bill, Cinema strolled to the Senate floor, paused, and did a little curtsy and gave a thumbs down, helped killing a Biden priority and apparently imitating another Arizona maverick, John McCain, whose famous thumbs down vote against his party's effort to kill Obamacare may have been his most iconic Senate moment. By the way, that was all one sentence. Democrats who heralded McCain's vote were appalled at Cinema's curtsy and vote, but that's who she's become, an independent-minded Democrat who is just no longer a Democrat. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, who has long been covering Congress. Carl, it's great to have you back on the program. Yeah, great to be here. You know, I, I don't think anyone can call what Cinema did a surprise but there was something about the timing that seemed to scream, do not ignore me. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it, it's, it was an interesting situation there. It wasn't surprising, but it was shocking. Uh, she has uh, a real sense of timing. If you remember earlier when uh, the President Biden was going up to Capitol Hill to try and convince Senate Democrats to get rid of the filibuster on voting rights, before he even got there, she went out on the floor and said she wouldn't do it. I think in talking to some of her colleagues that she just wants to get ahead of what her troubles are going to be, right? She sees things coming and moves to head them off, but the timing can be really bad. I mean, Chuck Schumer had barely gotten the words of celebration out of his mouth, and then she did this. And I would say that people weren't surprised, but they were caught off guard that she was willing to do this. And, of course, then she was really cagey about it, too. She didn't want to come out and say she was still going to caucus with the Democrats, even though she's getting their her committee slots from the Democrats. And she didn't even want the Democrats coming out and saying this is still going to be a 51-49 majority. So 
she likes to have things her way. And, you know, they're treating her with kid gloves. They don't want to push her away any further. But the big decisions are already facing them. What are they going to do about 2024? Well, that's a, that's a, actually when you were saying that about the, the, the uh, breakdown in the Senate, I was wondering about that, too, because uh, my original question was, you know, does, does the Senate go from 51 to 49, 51-49 to 50-49-1? And the reason I asked it is because there are already two independents in the Senate, you know, Bernie Sanders and Angus King. Right. And they've, all, they, they've always but been— But they always clearly align themselves with the Democrats, and they go to the Democratic meetings and are—and uh, uh, and actually, Bernie Sanders is part of the Democratic leadership, officially. Uh, but so that's a, a different situation. She she's never gone to the meetings, but she's still for the organizational purposes of the Senate. It should still be 50. Well, it's really I guess it's really I don't my math is bad. Is it 48, 3, 49? <laughs> right, right, right. With all I, the I guess that's what it. Yeah, but that's what it technically is. But for organizational purposes in the Senate, you know, the two parties assign the committee slots and. They're counting her. But how much they can count on her going forward, I think, is a real question mark for them. And they're, you know, she's very unpredictable. And uh, but she's also really made some big legislative deals happen. She's been crucial. She's seen as a as a serious legislator, even though she can be a little quirky and unpredictable and all of a sudden, you know, change your mind about things. But she's been key to getting some of these big deals. So they still need her. Uh, so, you know, how they dance around all this, I don't know. And Chuck Schumer was asked, well, what's he going to do about 2024? Would they support a Democrat against her since she'll officially be an independent? He, he said, well, I'm concentrating on the lame duck. They do not want to go near that question right now. They want to leave that alone for a year or so. I was thinking with a 50-50 Senate, you know, as we've had the last two years, any senator is crucial, and she certainly took advantage of it. But, you know, she said she left the Democratic Party because she felt boxed in and that she wanted the independence of voting whichever way she wants. But but John McCain, you know, speaking of Mavericks, mm-hmm. uh, he sure. he often voted his own way and often pissed off fellow Republicans, but he didn't need to leave the GOP to do it. Yeah, I think this is totally a, a, a electoral move. She can't. She has outraged the Democrats in Arizona, and there is an element of that Arizona Democratic electorate that's very progressive, even though it's a you know conservative state. There's there's progressive Democrats are a big chunk of the Democratic Party out there. She can't win a Democratic primary right now. And so I think she recognized that and kind of go, how do I get around this, right? What do I do? A little bit like Lisa Murkowski in Alaska, who got found, she one-on-one couldn't win a Republican primary in Alaska, where there's a big chunk of really Trumpy conservatives. So, you know, she charted out this new path with ranked choice voting. So these senators, you know, when they get boxed in electorally, they find ways to get out of that box. This is Cinema's attempt to do it, but I don't know if it's going to be successful at all. And the big fear, of course, is that she throws a seat to the Republicans through a three-way race. Well, speaking of a three-way race, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, who, who had been preparing a primary challenge, had this to say to MSNBC's Chris Hayes. Were you surprised by Cinema's announcement? Not really. I, I thought she was going to do this eventually. Look, she claims to be independent. That's not the case. 
The case is that she can't win a primary against me, uh, and this is her only option. And more importantly, uh, you know, she really has just abandoned the, the values of Arizona. Uh, and her being independent has nothing to do with the values of Arizona. It just means that she has an easier time to run, and she could go and talk to her friends in Wall Street and, and the pharma companies. You know, Carl, if we're assuming that's what caused her to switch, you know, the fear of losing a primary, I can't help but think of the last senator to switch parties, Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania, yeah. right? He was elected five yeah. times as a Republican, but in 2009, he realized that either the party was too far to the right for him or he was too far to the left to win another primary. And he was pretty frank about why he switched. My change in party will enable me to be reelected. Carl, it, it, it didn't work out that way, did it? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was there for all the Arlen Specter maneuvering, and I always gave him tremendous credit for being uh, totally frank about why he changed parties. He's like, I can't win in my own party. But he... He had, he had aligned himself with uh, Obama on the stimulus and a few other things. I'm sure you remember that. And so Obama and Harry Reid, the leader, said, we'll, we'll go out and campaign for you. We'll get you elected as a Democrat. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't get him there because the uh, Democratic Party in Pennsylvania remembered Arlen Specter from a lot of other things that he did that they didn't like. So these things are never it's never a sure bet i wrote a story about it and that you know some people win some people lose phil graham also i thought did the right thing when he he switched in the 80s because he was in the house he quit and ran and he had a governor who set up an immediate special election for him and he won so he did it probably the purest way you can do it right and in the senate it's a little trickier because a special election would be a year or so off and then uh, Dick Shelby, you know, one of the most famous party switchers, because he did it uh, the day after Newt Gingrich led the House uh, Republicans back to the majority after 40 years. And he had a big press conference, very celebratory press conference. And as he told me, he said, well, I got elected twice as a Democrat and four times as a Republican. And I got pretty much the same number of votes in both parties. So some people pull it off. Others don't, and uh, it's going to be tricky for cinema for sure. What I loved about the Arlen Specter thing is when he ran for re-election in 2004, there's a famous George W. Bush commercial that says, I need uh, Arlen Specter in the Senate. And then in 2010, there's a Barack Obama commercial that says, I need <laughs> Arlen Specter in the Senate. It's, it's just remarkable. Well, Arlen Specter, of course, was a really cagey and great politician. Uh, but that was just too big a hill for him to climb. But he knew that he had no chance at all in the Republican primary. Right, against so, Pat Toomey, right. Yeah, so he had to make a move. And, you know, he tried it, and uh, it didn't. It, he, he lost. Well, another senator who had problems with his own party was Joe Lieberman of Connecticut. He was a Democrat. He was his party's nominee for vice president in 2000. But, but he was so far out of the Democratic mainstream over the war in Iraq that he was defeated in the primary in 2006. But, Carl, his political career didn't end with that defeat. Right. That was probably the most uh, acute transformation that I could ever remember, you know, from being on the ballot and then, um, and, uh, and then almost being a... Uh, presidential candidate himself and then having to leave the party. But he, uh, Harry Reid took care of Joe Lieberman. So Lieberman uh, runs as an independent, wins and gets in the Senate. There's a lot of anger at him among Democrats. But 
Harry Reid recognized that he needed Lieberman's vote. He wanted him, so he allowed Lieberman to keep his committee positions. And so he still managed to have influence, and he had Harry Reid to thank for that. You know, I think that some of these states that allow you to lose but then run again, uh, there's been changes in those in states to prevent that. Uh, from happening. The sore loser laws, right? Right, right. That you can't uh, do that so easily anymore. Well, Lieberman sounded actually, he sounded very much like Kirsten Cinema during his post-election appearance on NBC's Meet the Press. I'm going to continue to do what I've always done and even more so, which is to work across party lines with my colleagues to get things done for my state and country. To me, that is my singular mission. And I'll work with anybody uh, I agree on. I'm not going to agree with on a, on a matter. I'm not going to uh, look at party labels. I'm going to look at, at, at what can we get done for our country and my state. But, you know, Carl, when he endorsed John McCain over Barack Obama in 2008, you kind of got the sense that, one, his relationship with the Democrats was finished forever and that he was not going to run again. Right, right. He, uh, you know, it's hard to to work within the Democratic Party when you do that. And now, he had a little bit of an excuse because he and McCain were such close friends, right. and, and he could say that. But it's uh, to your point about his remarks on his change, I mean, there is a script everyone follows here. Uh, they all say, the party left me. I didn't leave the party. <laughs> I'm going to be true to my constituents. But it doesn't always work out because Bill Grant, who you may not remember. Florida. Northern Florida. Yeah, he, he was North Florida, a real up-and-coming uh, politician. He was a Democrat in the panhandle, which, which was getting more and more conservative, but still had uh, mainly heavily Democratic registration, right? Because this was the era of the uh, yellow dog Democrats. And so he, he switched in 1989. George H.W. Bush pressured him, wanted uh, Bill Grant. So Grant switched and said, you know, I'm not going to change and I'm the same guy. But he was defeated. Uh, by a guy named Pete Peterson, who was a uh, Democrat and a he had been a pilot in Vietnam, captured, was a prisoner of war, somewhat like McCain. And he ran against Grant, and it, that race basically became a referendum on Grant's party switch. And the voters said, well, you're out, Bill Grant. So, you know, it cuts both ways. They have all basically now, those folks have become registered Republicans. And, you know, there were a lot of other party switchers that were happening around the South at that time. Andy Ireland, I don't know if you remember yeah, of him. of course, but of course. Was, right. So these, they, there was, and he was someone who act, who managed to survive. So it kind of depends on the electorate and also the skill and the deftness of the politician in handling it. And. I'm not sure that anyone would say that uh, Senator Cinema has handled this deftly. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of like there was a, there was a Mike Forbes on Long Island. There sure. was mm-hmm. uh, uh, there was a guy in Texas. Let me end with one more party switch because this is my favorite of all time. Um, this is 2001. Uh, George W. Bush was in his first year as president, and the Senate was 50-50, uh, Republican control, <laughs> thanks to right the tie-breaking vote of yeah. Vice President Cheney. And it was clear that Vermont's Jim Jeffords, probably the, the most liberal Republican senator, was unhappy with the GOP's move to the right. And he apparently warned his party leaders, like, look, they're pushing me away. you got to stop this. And they didn't listen to him. And, Carl, what happened? Yeah, I mean, Je- Jim Jeffords 
shocked the world and his Republican colleagues by switching and becoming an independent, but caucusing with the Democrats and the Republicans really mishandled Jim Jeffords because he was concerned about education. And he did not like what Bush was doing on education funding. As you said, he warned them and they didn't listen. Harry Reid again really, really worked over uh, Jeffords to get him to switch. And it's changed the majority in the Senate. And it was such a shocker. The Republicans were furious, and Jeffords was part of this group called the Singing Senators. I don't know if you remember that. (laughs) Trent Lott, right? Trent Lott? Yeah, with other Republican senators, and his move angered them so bad they broke up the Singing Senators. Now, Jeffords was, he did, he allowed the Bush tax cuts to pass. He didn't totally uh, stymie the president, but after that, they handed over the majority. Tom Daschle became the majority leader. The Republicans just... Never, never forgave Jeffords for that. And that was a that was a big momentous switch. In order to best represent my state of Vermont, my own conscience and principles I have stood for my whole life, I will leave the Republican Party and become an independent. Control of the Senate. Control of the Senate will be changed by my decision. Cinema's switch didn't quite have that impact because it didn't change the majority. And as I said, you know, they still consider themselves 51-49. But, you know, it, it got close there and uh, unnerved Democrats for a while. But yeah, Jim Jeffords, that was, that was quite a day in the U.S. Senate. Harry Reid convinced him to switch by offering him his own, Reed's own chairmanship of the Environment Public Works Committee. And Reed told me once, he still laughed about it. He said, can you believe I gave up a chairmanship to get him over there? He goes, who, who, who does that? Well, Harry Reid does that, and it worked very successfully. I was going to say it made Tom Daschle majority leader, even though just for a year, because the Republicans took it back in 2002. Right. I was just also thinking that uh, Jim Jeffords breaking up that, you know, that singing group. I thought Yoko Ono was the only person who breaks up you know, singing <laughs> groups. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think the singing senators, they weren't uh, on the same page anymore after that. Carl Hulse is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times, who has long been covering Congress. Carl, what I love about you the most is that you have this great sense of history about the Senate, and I, I learn something from you every time you're on The Political Junkie, so I appreciate it, and it's always great talking to you. Yeah, it's great. It's a topic uh, that I've really been interested in for a long time, so thanks for having me. Thanks, Carl. Darling, you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine I'll be here till the end of time So you got to let me know Should I stay or should I go? The Republican Party was always expected to take control of the House in this year's elections. President Biden's numbers were terrible. Inflation was at its highest rate in 40 years. Crime statistics were alarming. And the border was out of control. Plus, history tells us that the president's party loses seats in the House nearly every time in his first midterm election. But the GOP only had a net gain of some 13 House seats in November, far fewer than had been predicted. 
Still, with 222 seats in the next Congress, four more than the minimum required for a majority, Kevin McCarthy, the current Republican leader in the House, should be the next speaker. He should be, but will he be? Arizona's Andy Biggs, a hard-right conservative, announced he will challenge McCarthy in the January 3rd election. Here was Biggs at a virtual town hall meeting. And I just think that a change needs to happen. If we're going to change the trajectory of this country and return it to a constitutional republic, respect the rights of, of American citizens, I think you need somebody who knows how to use those procedural tools and fight to, to advance our cause. And... And that's why I'm challenging Mr. McCarthy. And, and um, uh, I tell people all the time, I'm not going to quit fighting for what, what uh, I believe is right, what I believe our constituents want, and what I believe Americans want. With all 213 Democratic votes likely to go to Hakeem Jeffries, the New York congressman who replaced the retiring Nancy Pelosi as his party's leader, if Biggs manages to deny McCarthy a majority of the votes next month, the contest for Speaker will go to a second ballot or longer until someone reaches the magic 218. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont McKenna College in California and an expert on Congress, and he's here to explain the possible scenarios in the vote for Speaker. Jack, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thank you. You know, two years ago, when Joe Biden was winning the presidency, Democrats nonetheless lost 13 seats in the House and leaving them with a slim 222-vote majority. That's exactly what the Republicans will have next year. But, you know, even though no one in her party challenged her back then, five Democrats didn't vote for Pelosi, who was re-elected Speaker by just two. This time, McCarthy has a challenger, Andy Biggs, who says he's in the race to stay. What's Biggs' case against McCarthy? That he isn't conservative enough, that he is not regarded as a skillful fighter against the Biden administration. Uh, the question is, could anybody possibly do better? Could anybody have done better as minority leader? And could anybody do better as speaker? That's very much in doubt. Back in 2015, when, on, when the hardliners in the House began their mutiny against John Boehner, they employed something called the motion to vacate the chair, and it was introduced by our old friend Mark Meadows. Can you explain what that was and what that means? Well, uh, a motion to vacate the chair would allow any member of the House to force a vote uh, to remove the Speaker. Now, uh, the kicker here is that uh, at the urging of Speaker Pelosi, the House of Representatives changed the rules a couple of years ago uh, to make the motion to vacate the exclusive prerogative of the leader of the opposite party. Uh, so a, a typical member could not force the motion to vacate. One of the demands of the Freedom Caucus is uh, a change in the rules that would bring it back to the way it was before that allow any member of the House to force such a vote. And in a closely divided House, that would uh, keep the a Speaker of the House on a very, very thin line. If the Speaker alienated uh, any number of his own party, they could force a motion to vacate, and uh, that person might lose his job. Before I get to the present, let me just go back to that the, the thing that you know they tried to employ against Boehner. So eventually Boehner said, you know, forget it, I'm out of here, it's not worth it. And then Kevin McCarthy threw his hat into the ring back then, 
but conservatives forced him to back down as well, and ultimately Paul Ryan became Speaker. Could you remind us what was the objection debater, and and why didn't Kevin McCarthy get it back then when he really wanted it, when he first wanted it? Well, the objective Boehner is that he, uh, even though he was a conservative, in fact, former head of the Conservative Opportunity Society in the House, he didn't give the uh, hardliners everything they wanted on trade and other issues. Uh, as far as Kevin McCarthy goes, he was in line to get it, and then he, uh, in what has now become a cliche, said the quiet part out loud. In an interview, he acknowledged the Benghazi investigation was designed simply to bring down uh, Hillary Clinton's numbers. Everybody knew that, but it's the kind of thing a politician doesn't admit in public. He did. Uh, there were uh, some other issues, rumors swirling around him, uh, but that was the occasion for members of the House to think, hmm, maybe this guy isn't ready for prime time. Uh, and so that delayed uh, McCarthy's rise. Fast forward to the president. McCarthy is uh, the Republican leader. Uh, there are still perhaps some doubts about his political abilities, which may be fueling some of the opposition. You know, I know that Nancy Pelosi has survived challenges to her leadership before, but they never they, they never really jeopardized her standing as, as a speaker or a potential speaker. Obviously, if there's any kind of a, I mean, if, if Andy Biggs gets more than four or five votes, that's jeopardizing McCarthy's bid for speaker. It's is, do you see him in any kind of trouble? Uh, given the narrowness of the margin, uh, yes, he uh, does potentially have, uh, is facing the possibility that the speaker vote could go, go to more than one ballot. Uh, if I were to bet, uh, I would say that he is still the most likely person to become speaker uh, among the Republicans. Uh, but it's not 100%. There are other uh, possible uh, results. Well, you know, when, when it was an intra-party vote last month, when it was just among the Republicans, uh, Biggs got 31 votes to McCarthy's 188. Nobody expects Biggs to get 31 votes on January 3rd for the vote for Speaker. But if he does get a bunch, meaning more than four or five, and if it goes to a second ballot, which... We can talk about later about the history of that. Um, is it possible? Well, anything's possible. <laughs> Here, I, you know, I love that. But I mean, would it necessarily go to Steve Scalise, the number two, or or do we think uh, McCarthy's going to stay in it until he ultimately prevails? The most likely outcome is that McCarthy will try to stay in the race. Uh, this is something that he has aspired to ever since becoming. The uh, uh, ever since becoming a member of Congress, he had been the Republican leader in the California State Assembly. Even there, he, he knew his chances of becoming Speaker of that body were uh, practically zero. Now he was in a body where a Republican could become Speaker, and that's something he, he has always wanted to do. So he's not going to give up easily. Uh, the question is what the other Republicans are going to think if uh, he doesn't succeed on the first ballot or even the second they might look for somebody else, and the most obvious candidate there is Steve Scalise. So I would keep an eye on him. 
You know, uh, we talked about what McCarthy needs to do to satisfy these conservatives. I noticed that Marjorie Taylor Greene is, is, has support, is supporting McCarthy. And, of course, he said from the beginning that he would restore her committee assignments in the new Congress that the previous Congress took away from her. So she's in his corner. And he's also said all the right things. You know, he's encouraged his members to be aggressive when holding hearings, you know, perhaps over the U.S. role in the withdrawal from Afghanistan against Dr. Fauci, Hunter Biden, or the, or even an investigation into the January 6th committee. And, and of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, I think on Joe Biden's first day in as president, she offered a resolution to impeach him, <laughs> you know, all the terrible things he's done on that first day. So I assume that will continue. So I guess... He seem he McCarthy seems to be doing the right things to win over these uh, the conservative Republicans, which leads to this question: Are there any moderate Republicans who might have their own set of demands? Yeah, they don't necessarily have demands, but they might be put off if he gives in to everything that the Freedom Caucus wants. Now, mind you, some of the things that the Freedom Caucus wants are. Uh, uh, moves that a lot of people wouldn't necessarily disagree with. For example, uh, they have a list of demands, and one of them is provide the House with 72 hours of notice on, on every bill, increase the ability to amend legislative text. I, uh, you know, lots of reformers think that's that's okay. So far, so good. Uh, but again, if you reinstate the motion to vacate, uh, that immediately puts a speaker on thin ice. Uh, uh, severely holding up the debt ceiling, right? Holding up the debt ceiling. That's exactly the kind of thing, uh, the substantive thing, particularly on the debt ceiling, that could alienate some of the moderates. So he has to worry about, uh, I can't really call it his left flank, but maybe his, uh, if there is such a thing, a middle flank. Don Bacon of Nebraska is one of those, I guess, those moderates. Uh, and right, there is no left flank in the Republican Party. Bacon said that maybe we could work, we moderate Republicans could work with some Democrats and then come up with a moderate alternative to McCarthy. And uh, McCarthy talked about this on, on Newsmax. If we don't do this right, the Democrats can take the majority. If we play games on the floor, the Democrats can end up picking who the speaker is. The model for that is uh, state legislatures. Uh, such things have actually happened in some legislative bodies. Uh, my old stomping ground is the New York State Senate. And uh, for a while, uh, some Democrats uh, worked together with Republicans to form the majority in the, uh, in the state Senate, a uh, governing coalition. That was, during, that, that was during Rockefeller's time, right? Well, that was just a few, actually, a few years ago. Oh, under Cuomo, that's true, too. But I think yeah. even Rockefeller, they named a more acceptable speaker or of the Assembly or state Senate majority leader because the two parties got together, right? Yeah, there was uh, some maneuvering about the election of Anthony Travia. Right, that's exactly uh, what I was thinking of. Can I just say one thing? We are the only podcast in the history of politics to mention Anthony Travia. As Speaker of the Assembly, <laughs> just want to point that out. And anyway, uh, so, you know, in other states, such things have happened in other states as well. Highly unlikely to happen in Congress. If you're a Republican, if you go into a deal with a Democrat, you are absolutely guaranteeing a serious primary challenge. Because uh, a lot of Republican voters aren't going to like that kind of arrangement. Conversely, uh, Democrats aren't going to be too crazy about that either. Uh, so while it's possible, could happen, I still wouldn't bet the red on it. 
There's also one thing we haven't talked about is McCarthy's relationship with Donald Trump. Uh, Do you expect McCarthy to use his speakership, his conference to amplify Trump's views? I mean, I know a lot of a lot of people are writing that, you know, the age of Trump is coming to an end. But McCarthy continues to be in his corner, it seems. Uh, I think McCarthy will stand with Trump just as long as doing so is to his own advantage. If members start peeling away from Trump, so will Kevin McCarthy. Uh, the thing about uh, McCarthy and Trump uh, is that their loyalty is completely transactional. And uh, as, as soon as it stops being personally beneficial, they'll drop it. I wouldn't make uh, any plans based on their loyalty lasting very long. There was, you know, I talked about the mutiny against Boehner that forced him out of speaker. There was a, a mutiny launched against Paul Ryan, who announced, OK, I'm not going to run again for re-election. And I guess that was 2006. What is it about House Republicans that, that they have this need to eat their own? Well, uh, way back in the 80s, uh, when I was working for the House Republicans, I would read the academic literature uh, and the assumption was that the Republicans are, you know, totally unified and totally conformist. But, you know, sitting in, uh, actually sneaking into uh, meetings of members, I, I noticed that certainly wasn't the case. Republicans uh, were just as factionalized as the Democrats, if not more so, over different kinds of things. But the uh, the factionalism was just as intense, and the feuds were just as severe. Weren't they? Were, were, wasn't there a coup attempt against Gingrich, or at least several coup attempts? Oh yeah, there was uh, indeed a coup attempt that was a forerunner of uh, the move to oust him. Eventually, uh, you know, Bill Paxson was involved in that. Dick Armey was briefly involved in that, and then he apologized to Gingrich. Uh, it was a real mess. Uh, and to people who have watched Republican politics for a long time, messes are not surprising. Remind us before we go, when was the last time a vote for speaker went beyond the first ballot? A complete century. So it is not within the time frame of anybody alive today. <laughs> uh, Frederick Gillette, right? 1923. Yes. Jack Pitney is a politics professor at Claremont McKenna College in California, an expert on Congress. He's the co-author of Divided We Stand, the 2020 Elections and American Politics. Jack, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. With Christmas and Hanukkah coming up, there are some wonderful gifts to be had, including Political Junkie t-shirts and socks and buttons. Again, you can find them at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash store. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. 
Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe and happy holidays. I'll see you soon. Three percent for sleeping with the windows shut. When it comes to fixing prices, there are lots of tricks he knows. How it all increases, all in bits and pieces. Jesus, it's amazing how it grows. Master of the house, with the catcher eye, never was a passer by the passing by. Servant to the poor, mother to the great, comfort a philosopher and lifelong mate. Everybody's boom companion, gives them everything I've got. Dirty bunch of geezers, Jesus, what a sorry little lie. <laughs>